want to talk to you about a reminder to leaders. And I added something on a little bit later, ensuring the success of the next generation. I'm not getting that old, but as I'm getting a little older, I realize that it's not just enough for us to survive. Have you ever been in that place in life where it's just about getting through today and surviving? Some of you may say, that's where I'm at right now, and I'm getting older. But I believe it's so important in a spiritual sense. Sometimes it's just a matter of there's a period in our lives where we think, God, if I just escape hell, I'll be thrilled, okay? God wants us to move us beyond that. He wants to take us into the promised land. He wants us to experience the blessings of living in intimate relationship with the Father. But not only that, he wants to ensure the success of the next generation. It's vital to God that the next generation be fully equipped to follow God. That the next generation be fully equipped for the battles that they will face. It's vital that the next generation is ready to lead the way. Today I want to address this message to those of you who are leaders. You're a leader in the church. You're a leader in the marketplace. You're a leader in your home. It's not just enough for you to experience victory, to possess the land or enjoy its blessing. But how do you continue to experience victory in your life? After the children of Israel went in and possessed the promised land, it wasn't just enough for them to fight their enemies and take possession of the land. How do they continue to live in a place of victory? And more importantly, how do they ensure that those who come behind them the next generation will continue to possess the land. How unfortunate it is when one generation sacrifices to obtain God's blessing and a new generation comes along and loses everything. Let me say it to you one more time. How unfortunate it is when one generation sacrifices, does whatever is necessary to obtain God's blessing. And a new generation comes along and loses everything. I've seen that in churches. I've seen that in churches where you had leadership and where you had a generation of saints who followed God as best they could and sought after the Lord and prayed and humbled themselves and preached a word and did ministry and lived out their faith. And the next generation comes along and they forgot those things that were taught them. And you have churches that are filled with weeds in their parking lots. And what a shame it is to think of all the sacrifices that were made to obtain God's blessing just to have another generation come along and lose it. Joshua chapter 23, starting at verse 1. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua by then, old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all of these nations for your sake. It was the Lord, your God, who fought for you. Remember how I allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the great sea in the west. We're going to stop there. Now, a long time had passed, and Joshua was at the end of his life. 
realized he didn't enter into the promised land until he was about 80 years old. But a long time had gone, so he was probably maybe 100 years or a little over 100 years old whenever this came. Joshua assembled the leaders of the nation together, probably at Shiloh, and he presented them with two options. Obey the Lord, option number one, and he will bless you and keep you in the land. Disobey the Lord, and he will judge you and remove you from the land. These were the terms of the covenant that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And you know, God keeps his covenant. God keeps his promises. Be they good promises or promises that we don't think are too good, God keeps his promises. He made that covenant to him at Mount Sinai. Moses repeated that, that covenant on the plains of Moab. And Israel reaffirmed that covenant at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Joshua wanted the people to live under God's blessing. As an old man who had fought hard and had sacrificed and had gone through all of those things, the last thing Joshua wants is for it all to be for nothing. Can I get an amen there? If you've worked hard, if you've sacrificed, if you've given of yourself for, you know, I mean, he went through the 40 years wandering around in the wilderness hoping for a better day. He walked across the Jordan River and went to Jericho and the walls fell down. He was hoping for a better day. In all of that, the last thing he wanted was for Israel to lose that blessing. While Israel had gained control of Canaan, they were still reminded, there still remained territory to possess and pockets of resistance to overcome. There was still a work to do. The looming danger that Joshua saw was not how powerful the armies were that surrounded them. That wasn't the danger. Why? Because God had already defeated the enemies that surrounded them. That wasn't Joshua's fear. And may I say this to you? The danger of the enemy coming against the body of Christ and coming against the church, that should not be our greatest fear. That's not the greatest danger. The greatest danger for the people of Israel were not surrounding armies because God had already defeated them and he showed them that he was able to destroy them. The greatest danger that they experienced was that on the inside that they would compromise, was that on the inside they would give up and they would start forsaking the ways of the Lord. They would not be destroyed from the outside, they would be destroyed from the inside. Let me assure you today, for the church of Jesus Christ, it will not be destroyed because some governor, because some king, because some president or a congress makes laws about anything. That will not destroy the church. It never will. It doesn't matter if a Republican or a Democrat is president. That will not destroy the church. When this church will be destroyed, when the church will be weakened, is from the inside. When you and I compromise, when you and I forsake the ways of the Lord, righteousness exalts a nation, but righteousness, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So we get all caught up and I believe we should vote. I believe we should be involved in those things and make wise choices. But please be assured, my friend, the church prospers in the midst of difficult times. The church is not hindered. What it does is it strengthens those who are legit. 
and it weeds out those who are fake. That's what it does. It just weeds out those who are fake, who aren't committed in the first place. The danger that concerned him was that the people of Israel would be seduced by the pagan nations around them and gradually change their attitude towards them and start accepting their ways and imitating their behaviors. I'm going to do some old-time preaching just for a moment. God has called us to be a chosen people, a holy nation. He says that we're a peculiar people, that we have been called to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. The word says that we are to be a separate people. God told him to come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing. We're told in both the Old and the New Testament that we are to be holy, that we are to be set apart for the master's service. We are called to avoid the very appearance, not just evil. We are called to avoid the very appearance of evil. Joshua knew that if Israel was to continue in their victory, they had to be set apart. May I suggest to you, in spite of what God has already done in your life, and God may have delivered you from the deepest pit and from the deepest mire, for you to continue to live in victory, you must remain set apart to the Lord. You must remain holy unto the Lord. You don't belong back there in the muck and the mire. You belong to Christ. He has purchased you with his blood. First point I want to share with you. Joshua calls them to be separate and to serve the Lord faithfully because of what the Lord did for Israel. From the days that Israel left Egypt, the Lord has fought for his people, and he delivered them from their enemies. It was the Lord who drowned the Egyptian army in the sea and then defeated the Amalekites who attacked the Jews soon after they had left Egypt. The Lord defeated all of Israel's enemies as the nation marched toward Canaan. And he gave his people victory over the nations in the promised land. This review of history reminded Israel of two important facts. Those Gentile nations were God's enemies and therefore must be Israel's enemies. And the same God who overcame the enemy in the past would help Israel overcome their enemies in the future. God had never lost a battle. He has never failed his people. And if they would trust him and obey his word, he would help them completely conquer the land. Verse 3 says, You yourself have seen everything the Lord has done to all the nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Joshua wasn't taking all the glory. He says it was God who fought for you. It was God who went to battle for you. This is a good reminder to us who have been delivered from sin and bondage. We could go around the room and share the stories of all that the Lord has done in your life. We could go and talk about how he brought you out of the muck and how he brought you out of the mire and how he set your feet upon a solid rock. In light of what God has done for you, why would you now want to associate with the old enemies? In light of what God has brought you from, why would you want to go back there Again, what is there back there that is such a draw for you? What is it, since God has brought you out of that, what is it back there that would truly appeal to you? Our second point, Joshua calls them to be separate 
and to serve the Lord faithfully because of what the Lord said to Israel. Look at verses 5 through 10. The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without a turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, verse 7 is one I want you to underline and highlight in your Bible. Look what it says. It says, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord God fights for you just as he promised. Now, what was the key thing in verse 7? It was do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Now, here was the thing. God told them to utterly destroy them. And along the way, there were times in which they did not utterly destroy their enemies. Why did God tell them to utterly destroy them? Because he understood. If you let these guys survive, they will be a thorn in your flesh. They will be a stumbling block for you. The secret for Joshua's success and the reason for Israel's victory was his devotion to the word of God. Joshua obeyed God's command, and he believed God's promises. And God worked on his behalf. But even more than his devotion to the word, God enabled Joshua to get to know God better, to love him, to desire to please him. It's not enough for you and I to know the word of God. I think that's where a lot of people are. They're at a place where they need to learn the word. There's a lot of folks here. The reason why they lack stability in their lives is because they're not in the Word. Just tell you flat out. When you're not in the Word, you're not going to be stable, okay? The reason why they're shaking a lot is because they're not in the Word. It's just the bottom line. However, there's a step beyond reading the Word and knowing the Word of God. And that when we go beyond that, we begin to know the heart of God. And we know the God of the Word, We start to know him and this intimacy and this relationship that develops with him. But that comes from, that comes as a result of being in the word. We begin to hear his voice and know his will and can clearly discern the voice of God. God kept all his promises. And he had every right to expect his children to keep his commandments. Some of God's promises are unconditional But some of God's promises are conditional and depend upon our obedience for their fulfillment. Israel entered and conquered the land as the fulfillment of God's promise. But their continued possession and enjoyment of the land depended upon their obedience to the Lord. God would enable them to claim all their inheritance if they would love him and obey him with all of their hearts. The most important thing was that Israel remain a separate people and not be infected by the wickedness of the Gentile nations around them. Joshua warned them that their disobedience, he tells them this is what it's going to be like. Their disobedience is going to be gradual. 
First, they would associate with these nations. Then they would start discussing their religious practices and going back and forth. And before long, Israel will be worshiping the false gods of the enemy. The Jewish men would marry the pagan women. And the line of separation for God's people and the world would be completely erased. It would be hard to imagine that this could happen. But if they did not remain separated, God tells them, eventually you're going to be bowing down and worshiping the gods of these defeated armies. If you don't listen to me, if you don't pay attention to what I say, you and your children are going to be bowing down and worshiping at the shrines of these defeated idols. Why would you be worshiping a defeated God with a small g? Now, what was the lure of these false gods? I want you to think about that. What was the lure of the false gods, of the life of the Canaanite people, with all these ites? Did they like the architecture of the places where they worshipped? Was it that they liked how well carved these wooden gods were? Is that what amazed them? Oh, look, what, oh my, look, at, it's the great guitar god. I'll just bow down and kiss the guitar god. Can we just be frank here for a few moments? What the lure was, it wasn't that, oh my, are any of you drawn to come and kiss this flower arrangement? Oh, what a beautiful flower arrangement. I'll make you my God. Like the average guy, does, does that appeal to anybody? I mean, you know, you can tell us. We'll set you up with some counseling and some prayer and maybe a little medication and get you squared away. I'm not drawn to bow down before some flower pot. That's what they made for their gods. It would be a graven image. It would be something that was molded with their hands or something that was shaped by their hands, someone had made. Can I tell you that the average Israelite guy didn't give a rip about the guitar god? Oh, thou great guitar god. The piano god? That wasn't what drew him. Do you know what drew him? Anybody know? What drew them is the same thing that pulls at people today. It was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those who were pulled away to idolatry were not drawn to the wood or stone carvings. They liked the parties. And these Canaanite women knew how to party. I mean, it's like MTV, VH1. We blocked all those out from our house. But MTV, VH1, all put together. A few years ago, when Lori and I, we went away for an anniversary. But we flew down to Fort Lauderdale, and then we drove from Fort Lauderdale down to the Florida Keys for our anniversary. And it was a nice day and nice time. We came back, and we said, well, let's go to, we'd always heard about, like, Miami and how beautiful that was. And so we said, well, let's go through Miami. We turned a corner on to, I can't think of the name of the street now, but it is on South Beach. Uh, and it's just like a party place. Well, it was Urban Week. And we come driving in our rental car, two people from Lancaster County, and we pull into Urban Week, which is like a rap video. I started cracking up laughing. I said, what are we doing here, honey? We're in a rap video. 
There were thousands and thousands of people up and down the strip there, up and down the street along the beach there on that main thing, riding like real sporty cars and Bentleys and big spinners and girls in bikinis and on the backs of motorcycles and the backs of cars. I was like, we need to get out. This is crazy. Like they know how to party down there at Urban Week. The Canaanite people love to party. It was in the 60s, drug, sex, and rock and roll. I don't know if they had rock and roll back then, but that's what it was. And God understood that that was going to be something. There was a spirit about that that drew people. It's the same spirit that seduces men and women today. The same spirit that's behind the pornography industry. Come on, have a good time. People were drinking, they were partying, the dress was seductive, and so were the men and the women. And if they put themselves in that position, they would eventually be lured away from the Lord. These guys would bow and kiss some stupid idol, so long as they could keep partying with the girl. You've got to understand that. That's what drew them. It's not the idol. It's not the wooden thing. It's this party, this craziness that's going on, this lust of their flesh. God is so faithful. I had my message all done, and I was talking to my brother Friday night. I finished up my message Friday afternoon uh, and come over and printed it out and emailed it. And then I was talking to my brother on my way home, and he started telling me about a call he had. So somewhere today, I want you to know, in church, somewhere today, is a Christian man who's sitting in church, and he's feeling really guilty today, and he's feeling really convicted. As he's sitting, he's in a church somewhere. And my brother got a call. You know, he's a trooper. He got a call to the hospital. There was a fight at a local strip club. And so he gets called to the hospital to investigate. And he goes in. The guy who wants to make the complaint, he had had dealings with him before. If the police know you by first name basis, that's usually not really like a good thing. Okay? You don't want them to know you by the first name. You don't want them to call your kids out. Hey, Billy, how have you been? You don't want them to do that. So he gets in, he starts, goes in and sees the guy, and the, the guy's drunk and starts lying to him from the very beginning. He's lying to him, not telling him the truth, argumentative and stuff. And the guy had this other guy who was with him. The guy had gotten into a fight at the strip club. After the fight, he went back in. A guy hit him. He goes back in to the strip club, drinks a few more beers and drinks, and then he falls over. But it wasn't because he'd gotten hit you know, four or five drinks before. It was because he was drunk and running his mouth. So he goes in, he talks to this guy, and he realizes that this is a mutual combat situation. If I press charges against him, you're not giving me the information of who the guy is. You act like you don't know him. If I press charges against him, I'm also going to press charges against you because you were fighting with him. You know, there's no real visible signs of him, you know, like his head cracked open or anything. And so he goes out and he starts to talk to the other guy while he's doing this. And he says, this guy seemed different. Like he really didn't belong here. So he goes and he starts to talk to the guy. And he says, uh, he says, you know, I'll just be honest with you. You seem a little different than your buddy in here. He says, you know, he's drunk. He's acting like an idiot. You seem like a decent guy. You want to tell me what's going on? And so the guy's like, he says, you know, he says he doesn't know who did it. He says, well, yeah, he knows who it was. It was, it was another guy. We went there together. Okay. All right. How do you know each other? Uh, we went to school together. And just in the conversation, he's like, well, where'd you go to school? And he's like, 
such and such Christian school. It's like, okay. Hmm. Such and such Christian school. And you're fighting outside the bar. Strip club. So he starts talking to him some more, and and the guy starts telling him some more stuff of of what had happened and what took place. And as they're talking there, the guy says, like I say, you could see that the guy was really uncomfortable. So he says to him, how'd you end up there? Well, my wife and I, you know, how'd you end up going there? Well, my, my wife and I had a fight, and we're not getting along, and she doesn't want to sleep with me, and we're newly married, and, you know, it's my second marriage, and we're, she's not wanting to sleep with me, so I, I was mad, and we went out in a strip club, and I was like, oh, okay, all right, uh, how do you think she's going to want to sleep with you after she finds out you're at the strip club? What's she going to think about that? Well, I don't think she'd think too much of that. Okay. And so in the midst of the conversation, he begins to see that this guy is, you know, he went to the Christian school. His wife doesn't want to know that he was at the strip club. They start talking a little more. What are you doing with him? You seem like a good guy. He's acting like a nutcase. What are you doing with him? Well, we all went to church together. He's like, oh, okay. Do all the guys from your church come down here? No. Oh, okay. Well, where do you go to church? And he, uh, where? Uh, uh, uh. Okay. My brother's a pastor there. Oh, your brother's a pastor there. Once again, what are you doing with this guy? Well, he used to go to church. But he quit going. He came to church a little bit, and he quit coming. Okay. Well, are you involved in your church? Yeah. Yeah, I'm involved in my church. Well, let me ask you. He says, so he says to him, there's this old saying, be sure your sin will find you out. And he says, I usually don't, Todd said, I usually don't talk to people like this. He said, but I just felt really impressed. As, you know, along the way, just as he's talking to this guy, he says, there's this old saying. And the guy's like, I know, man, I've been thinking about that. He said, well, like, if something worse would have happened and your name would have been in the front page of the paper, what do you think your wife and kids in your church would have thought about that? They wouldn't have thought too much. And so he talks to him a little bit more. And he's like, well, how did you, how did you end up here? Well, we, this guy was having troubles. And I was trying to help him. Oh, you're trying to, okay. So we'd get together and we'd go out and have a beer. Okay. I don't think it's wrong to have a beer. Okay. So I was just like, okay. Huh? He said, okay, so do you do that with all the guys who are having trouble in your church? Is that what your church does? Do you get together with them and go out for beers? And the guy's like, is that what your church thinks? And the guy's like, no. And the guy says, I started out where I thought I was trying to help him. And look at me now. He pulled me down. You think? Is that really what happened? So today, somewhere in a church in Delaware, there's a guy sitting in church, and he's embarrassed. And his wife don't know that he's kind of talking with the police. He's at, at a fight, in a bar, a strip club, where his buddy's as drunk as a skunk can't stand up. Now, I'm not sure how drunk he is, 
he sobered up pretty quick when he started talking to the police. I don't think that's the way he intended it to end up. I think somewhere along the line, he really probably did want to help this guy. I'm going to tell you something. When he was going out drinking a beer with, with this guy who's struggling, he was not helping him a bit. That guy had a hook on him and was just pulling him right down. And there he is. There he is. He's mad at his wife. Called at the hospital, talking to the police officer. And here's a state trooper asking him, Oh, is what your church does with all the guys who are having struggles? Take them to the strip clubs. No, that's not what we do. Don't want you sure of this. Be sure your sin will find you out. It will catch you. It'll catch me. It'll bite us. It'll grab a hold of us. It will destroy us. I assure you, the enemy is looking for opportunities all along the way to make a public spectacle of God's people. Now, here's the thing. For that gentleman, I said to him when they were done, to, well, I told him he was a Christian. And he said, um, you know, I think maybe this is a warning for you. Before things get any worse, before any more embarrassment, before there's any more humiliation, this is a warning for you. I'm not coming to your house and knocking on your door telling your wife what you've done. I'm not even writing up a report. Your name's not going to be in this. You know, there's no charges filed. But maybe God's trying to get someone's attention. And, you know, that just serves a perfect illustration to show us that the things of this world are pulling at God's people. And the enemy knows what draws God's people. He knew that, listen, that the pressures, Romans talks about us not being conformed to the patterns of this world. All of us feel the pressure of the world around us, trying to force us to conform to its image. And it takes courage to defy the crowd and stay true to the Lord. But also takes a love for the Lord and a desire to please him. In verse 8, the word that's translated cleave is the word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 to describe the relationship of a husband to his wife. You know, when you get married, the Bible says that you're to cleave to your wife. Husband, they're to cleave to one another. That means that you grab a hold and you wrap your arms around and you interlace your arms and your legs and your feet and you don't let anything steal them away. Because there'll be a lot of pressures to pull you apart. And you know what? There's going to be a lot of pressures that are going to try to pull people away from their spiritual husband, God. Israel was married to God. They were in relationship with God. And there was going to be a lot of pressures. There's going to be a lot of things that would try to seduce them and pull them away. How tragic it would be that Israel would become an unfaithful wife, a prostitute. That she would turn to other gods and other nations. Now, the third thing and the final thing is that Joshua called them to be separate and to serve the Lord faithfully because of what the Lord would do to Israel. His promise is, is a two-edged sword. Do you know that? He'll bless you. He'll prosper you. Well, let's look at verse 11. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourself with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, And if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. He says, I'm not going to fight for you anymore. Instead, 
They will become snares and traps for you. Whips on your back and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which your Lord God has given you. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. As I said, the word of the Lord is a two-edged sword. If we obey it, God will bless you and help you. If we disobey, God will chasten you and he'll discipline you until you submit to his authority. If we love the Lord, we'll want to obey him and please him. So the essential thing is that we cultivate a satisfying relationship with God. I'm take a rabbit trail. What's the answer to lust, to the desires of the flesh? There's two things. Love God. But God says that our energy and our affections are to be for our wives and a wife for her husband. That's where when Israel would follow after God, God would bless them in so many ways. But if they would set their affections on other things, they would really never be satisfied. They would never be satisfied. So the answer is to obey the Lord and follow his word and do what he commands. Developing the relationship, what these men needed to do instead of like lollygagging over some woman who sees them as a $5 bill, who probably can't even say her name right. Instead of doing that kind of foolishness, they need to spend their energy and their time after the person who God has given them. And you'll find that they can be fully satisfied and fully blessed and fully happy in the relationship that God has given them. Israel could have been fully happy and fully satisfied and fully blessed in the relationship that God had given them with him. Joshua reminded the people that God's word never fails. Whether it's a promise for blessing or the word of promise for discipline. Both are evidence of his love because the word says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Moses had warned Israel against compromising with the evil nations in the land and Joshua reaffirms this warning one more time. It's at the end of his life. If Israel began to mingle with these nations, two things would happen. God would remove his blessing and Israel would be defeated and these nations would bring distress and defeat to Israel. Joshua used descriptive words like snares, traps, scourges, and thorns to impress the Jews with the suffering they would experience if they disobeyed the Lord. There'll be thorns in your eyes. The final part of this blessing was this, that God would remove them from their land to a land of exile. Joshua, he's about a hundred and some years old. And he's saying, guys, if you don't stay separated, all that we've worked for, all the blood, sweat, and tears, all the steps of faith, 
all of those hard acts of obedience. Some of you know about those hard acts of obedience. When you feel like you're dying, when you're sacrificing, when you're giving up to do the will of God, all of those things, all of that progress will be lost. All that we've worked for, all that we've done, all that we will have accomplished will be lost because you choose to associate with the Canaanites because you don't separate yourself from them. It's not going to happen instantly. It's going to be gradual, but this is going to be the result. You're going to go into exile and you're going to lose the land. It's going to be gone. That was God's promise to them. And Joshua's telling them, you know God keeps his word. You know he told us he was going to bring us into the land and he did it. And you know this, that if he tells us you're going to lose the land, you're going to lose it. Three times in this brief address, Joshua calls Canaan this good land. When God called Moses at the burning bush, he promised to take Israel into a good land. And Joshua and Caleb described Canaan as a good land after 40 days of investigation. In his farewell message, Moses used the phrase good land at least 10 times. The argument that he's making there is since God has given us such a good land, the least we can do is to live to please him. Since he's given you such a good land, it's such a good place, the least thing you can do is to live to please him. Now let me make this very clear. It might sound old-fashioned, but I want to assure you one thing, my friend, it works. It works. There needs to be a separation of God's people from the world. The word says that you and I are to come out from among them. And verse 7, it says, If you choose, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. Bad company cops, good morals. If you choose to align yourself with the things of this world, and you choose like the Israelites, God made him a promise. He said, I'm going to tell you what. If you associate with these pagan nations and you don't keep yourself separated unto the Lord, they are going to seduce you and they are going to draw you away and your children, your children, that's what he's talking about. Your children are going to lose everything you work so hard for. I just suggest to you today, as God's people, I'm talking to parents and grandparents. We need to take a stand for holiness. You may say it's old-fashioned, out of style. It's never out of style. Not in God's economy. We need to separate ourselves from the things of this world. And can I tell you what? When your children and grandchildren see you doing it, I want to assure you that that affirms to them that it's okay. When the young people in the church see Christians, well, we just have one beer at the bar. I guess it's okay now to go to the strip club. I didn't know that that was okay. Like I say, his wife didn't think it was okay. Or at least, he, you know, it's something how we justify things in our minds until we get a wake up. When you associate yourself with the world and, and don't come out from among them, don't be surprised. Please don't be surprised. Do not be surprised when the next generation loses everything that you worked so hard to get. Now you have a choice. Two things. You can obey God 
and live under his blessing and enjoy the fruit of the land, enjoy his favor. Or you can follow after your flesh and you can do what your flesh wants. And there's a promise of God that you will lose all of the advancements that you've made. So you go ahead and make your choice today. Father God, I pray a blessing upon your people. I pray that we would determine in our hearts, that we would just determine in our hearts that God, I want the next generation to live in the land. I don't want them to have to fight all of the battles of addiction or habits that maybe some of us have had to fight. I don't want them to have to go and try and repossess the land again. Lord, I want them to live in a good and fruitful place. For my friends' children and grandchildren, I pray that they too would see that the word of God is true. And you will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he also reap. I pray that we be people who sow to please the Spirit. And from the Spirit, may we reap eternal life. To you be the glory, honor, and praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.